0: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Alex Castellanos has been a major figure in the Republican Party uh, for decades as an ad maker, a strategist, a commentator. And in this past election, he ran a super PAC uh, on behalf of Donald Trump. Uh, I sat down with Alex the other day to talk about his candidate, now the president-elect, and the future. Alex Castellanos, first of all, thanks for being a uh, a fellow at the Institute of Politics. It was great great to have you there, and thanks for being here.
2: Are you kidding? No, a lot of fun. Nothing more fun than uh, rounding up the usual suspects, just like they do at the end of Casablanca. They've been good, <laughs> always good to see you.
1: Um, I want to talk to you. There's plenty to talk about, about what's going on now, but I'm really interested in... Uh, in your story, um, and uh, how you how you got to this point, and where you started. So, and that's Cuba.
2: Cuba came here. Um, we came here in 1961, January of 61. Uh, my mom and dad brought me and my uh, little sister here, and we had 11 bucks, a suitcase, and uh, how'd you come over? Pan Am. <laughs> we you're uh, still you were allowed to actually they were looking for my father uh che Guevara was the kind of political correctness enforcer and he was the one who went around to the intelligentsia and all of that and kind of got people on board and he came around to dad and said um What did your dad do? Uh, He was a doctor. Dad Mm -hmm. had his own practice, but he also uh, did some uh, work for Park Davis, a pharmaceutical firm for DuPont, that kind of thing. And uh, it came around to dad and said, um, hey, doc, you know, make sure you're with the revolution. And uh, dad was not political at all, so he tried to explain that he was just a a doctor, an M.D., and that's not something he really uh, paid a lot of attention to. And uh, Jay explained to him, no, doctor, uh, you're either with us or against us. And um, so I'd been bringing home pictures of the brave Cuban soldier bayonetting the cowardly American soldier from school, color in type things. Because at it's right around the Bay of Pigs, right? Well, yeah. And uh, and they at first they were trying to, you know, using the, the teachers and all of that to indoctrinate the kids, even at that early age. And uh, we did have that, um, and I remember it, that the uh, the teachers one day asked us, uh, hey, kids, let's all close our ice- eyes and pray to God for ice cream. And, of course, we close our eyes, no ice cream. Kids, let's ask Fidel for ice cream. Yay, we got ice cream. And so uh, stories like that, that's really the reason Uh, that mom and dad got us out. And uh, we left, uh, you know, the money in the bank account, the car in the garage. Now, dad... I've seen the
1: picture of the house. The house was
2: quite nice. Now the Hungarian embassy. It is now the Hungarian embassy. Maybe that's the way to sneak back one of these days. (laughs) A lot of people are Hungarian uh, or just hungry down there now. But um, dad applied for his own visa to to get out, uh, and uh, that wasn't working. So he had a friend send him a uh, telegram doctor come quick to Miami uh you know we need help someone's sick so dad got out that way but my sister and I were on my mom's passport so we got out with mom a few days later mm-hmm. you uh
1: you talk about Fidel and the and uh and Che and the revolution and uh, the push for uh, conformity with the revolution um Pre-Revolution, you had Batista.
2: That had its own issues. Yeah. Uh, they used to call Cuba the Isle of Cork because it was so corrupt, but it still floated. <laughs> and uh, most people uh, didn't pay any attention to Batista. You know, he, he uh, robbed and raped the island. And, but as long as you didn't mess with the corrupt government, they generally didn't mess with you. And so it was... Uh, a, a tolerance that people had and then they woke up one day to find out that ignoring that problem uh, led to another one you know cuba was one of those places where people thought it couldn't happen here and it did and i think precisely because people turned a blind eye to batista and uh i in the countryside there there were there was a lot of discontent obviously that the uh, that uh, Fidel and Che and those guys you know there was there now. was there was some discontent certainly uh, and there should have been with Batista and the corruption and the brutality of the Batista regime But it doesn't take much to ferment a revolution. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't take a lot of people discontent. It just takes a lot of people sitting on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. And really, I think that was more the case in Cuba. It was a romantic revolution Mm -hmm. at first. It was young against old, change against the status quo. and uh, Fidel was, what,
1: 32 years
2: old? Yeah, and... um, and so I think that was a lot of it. It was the hope of something better. Mm-hmm. Uh, be careful what you hope for.
1: What was your feeling uh, when you read the news that Fidel had passed away all these years later? I mean, he's been a, a giant presence uh, now for 60 years.
2: My first thought was, I wish my mom and dad had been around to see that day. Um, they gave up so much to get me here to enjoy the freedom that people are still denied in Cuba and how my life might have been so different if they hadn't been that courageous. And I wonder if I would be that courageous in their situation. Did, uh, um,
1: did your dad, was he able to reconstitute his medical yeah,
2: practice? He came over here, and it took a year in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, they... They gave him a job there, uh, Park Davis, a pharmaceutical firm, uh, translating directions on pharmaceutical products from German to English because he'd had a year of English in high school and bought a dictionary. You know, America's a place where you can learn to do anything. And um, it's the first place we ever saw snow in Detroit, Michigan, and we had to call Dad at work and find out why people <laughs> were throwing oatmeal off the roof of the building. <laughs> I, uh, I put snow in my pockets to bring home the show. That didn't work out out too well, yeah. I was 19 at the time, which is embarrassing, (laughs) but no. Uh, But no, yeah, he got his license. He became a country doctor in North Carolina, everything from minor surgeries to delivering babies to you name it. And uh, that's, uh but dad, when dad came over here, he burned his bridges. He, uh, unlike a lot of people who stayed in Miami and said, we'll be back one day, he said, folks, we're Americans now. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that made and a lot of difference. Were you Spanish speaking in the home? Oh, yeah. We spoke Spanish at home. I had to learn Spanish in school in uh, first grade here. And uh, But, you know, when you're a kid, you're a sponge. You can pick up anything. You mean you
1: had to learn English? Learn English yeah. here.
2: Yeah, not Spanish. No, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but we always spoke Spanish at home. And uh, my folks always told me that it went the other way. I learned to speak Spanish with a southern accent because we <laughs> grew up in North Carolina. Uh-huh. And... Um, how how did all of this if at all tell me about
1: how you developed your your political philosophy and i should just say parenthetically that my first exposure to you was when i was a young political consultant i've said this to mike murphy who was one of your early partners maybe the early partner and you guys were sort of the what the firebrand young turks uh conservative uh turks that that was my first exposure to you guys but what happened between the time that you were in North Carolina and coming along to that point that got you into
2: politics? Well, I was um, I was at Chapel Hill in uh, North Carolina at the university there where the sky is always Carolina blue. And uh, I was headed for medical school. I was going to be a doctor like my dad. And I thought uh, a philosophy and English major headed for medical school. So you can see some tension there already. Geez, after after 30 years, I'll be a doctor. I'll have, uh, you know, the wife, two kids, station wagon, golf on Wednesdays. What a boring life. I got to do something else. So uh, I dropped out of school. I dropped out of Carolina with a semester As to go. There's cons- many political – a lot of political <laughs> consulting stories started that way. Yeah, yeah, a little wandering away from the established route. And uh, some friends sent me over to the Reagan campaign in 1976 in North Carolina. And I said, you know, you're kind of a conservative guy. Uh, that's the way you think. Go talk to these people. Had you thought a lot about politics before? I had never thought about politics. Hadn't done anything political. And uh, I expected, okay, politics, what's that? I'll go. And I expected to see George Washington and guys in powdered wigs sitting around. And instead, it was, uh, uh, you know, Tom Ellis, Carter, Wren, a bunch of uh, kind of the beginnings of the conservative movement in North Carolina. And it's it's interesting. I showed up on a Wednesday ready to stuff some envelopes. And they said, hey, you've got a job in the youth campaign. We're going to pay you 500 bucks a month. Show up to work on Monday. I said, "Well, I have to think about that now." It's... And they called me back Thursday, told me I'd been promoted. <laughs> I was now a field man in the regular campaign, making seven fifty. I said, "Jesus, politics stuff is great. Uh, you get promoted before you go to work." So mm-hmm. that's how I got started in it. But the the Reagan campaign turned out to be the Helms organization in North Carolina. That turned out to be the Congressional Club, kind of one of the first political conglomerates that kept the resources in a corporate and and hub so that it could be transferred to other campaigns we invented direct mail in those days i started out the first company i ever started was jefferson marketing because you could send out paper and people would send back money (laughs) it was like water into wine you uh yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. You, you obviously, you started
1: off sort of as a uh, w- without any particular skills in this. Uh, and how did that happen to me? How did you make the transition from being the guy who got promoted twice before he knew what he was doing <laughs> to a guy who was
2: producing the message message oriented material? The bar must have been pretty low. Um, I helped start each of the departments in what uh, turned out to be, after the Reagan campaign, the Helms campaign, Jesse Helms, U.S. Senate. Start each of the departments and then move on and finally ended up trying to help raise money. And we started, we didn't know that direct mail had already been invented, so we invented it ourselves again. And uh, just started writing direct mail copy. And boy, direct mail will teach you how to sell. You know, Uh, deer turnip, send blood. Mm-hmm. and uh, writing copy is good training for just about anything. And after that came Were you a writer Did you, well, by nature? I
1: mean, was that something I was that you a enjoyed reader. Uh-huh. I was a reader well, more a, than a writer. That's a predicate yeah. to being
2: a good writer, I think. And no, just the scariest thing in the world today to me is still a blank piece of paper a blank screen. It's yeah. the thing I love the most value the most find the hardest to do, but there's nothing better than a day when you've written something that is, you, you Yeah, you is, is always fun when you've done, when you're done writing, when you're, where you're done were with writing. it. After, after you've cut open the vein and bled on the paper, it's, it's a, it's I think a ball. You have that in, uh, we, we all have yeah. that in common. Anybody who writes, but then, then our pollster in that race was a guy named Arthur Finkelstein. Yeah, sure. A a legend, mad genius, mad mm-hmm. genius. And I, spent a couple of years as the sorcerer's apprentice doing survey work all around the country and when you're doing survey research hey here's here's so you work for Arthur. I work for arthur yeah Mm -hmm. i follow him around the country giving survey reports writing surveys no statistical background but you learn Mm -hmm. and then you find out okay here's the story we need to tell here's here's the biggest and highest truth that we can find and well here let me Help you with that speech. Oh, well, here's the kind of TV spot we ought to do. How about uh, the press release? And the next thing you know, you're making the TV spot, and that's how I got into the media end of things.
1: You know, you use the word story. It's a story. It's a it's a word I use a lot. Yeah. Um, and it, it's always the case that the campaign that wins tends to have the more uh, the 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 more compelling,
2: or impactful, or incisive, or discernible uh, story. It's the journey of our life, isn't it? That's how we that's how we live our lives and give our lives meaning in a story. That's what we look for uh, in others, especially someone to lead us. Um, yeah, it's it's only being a media consultant in politics is a is a vocation that is thousands and thousands of years old. Only the campfires are electronic now, right? We sit around them and tell our stories, but it's nothing new. But, you know, it's a funny thing
1: because we have this modern, now we have all these modern accoutrements of politics, analytics, uh, that allow us to target finely and um, improperly used. They can really be destructive because you end up telling, you end up with a lot of
2: trees and no forest. The easiest thing, the easiest way to lose a campaign is to deconstruct it. Uh, the hardest thing to do is to find one big unifying, elevating purpose uh, and creating a great story. I remember uh, Mark Penn wrote that book a few years ago about, uh, you know, there are no Americans. There are hundreds micro, of Amer- uh, Micro something. Micro trends. Micro trends. And I thought, this is awful. How can you elect anyone president of America when you don't think there is an America, when you think there are thousands of them? And yes, there are thousands of them, but you got to believe in one because that's your goal to lead folks.
1: Well, and um, there has to be a premise that uh, everybody can grab onto. I mean, you— Started with Reagan, you know, and he was a master storyteller. And he had, I didn't agree with him on a lot of stuff, as I don't agree with you on a lot of stuff, but he, uh, but he did have a very, very vivid portrait of America that he, that, that, that really was evident in everything, in all of his, in all of his communications. And that was really the key to his, his success.
2: I think that, uh, the reason I got into politics in 76 was Ronald Reagan. You know, I have the immigrants' view of America that this is the land of endless promise and limitless frontiers. And my folks told me that's where they brought me. And then I see this guy running for president, Ronald Reagan, that makes you feel that. And I've always been attracted to that candidate. You know, that's what I like best about Mitt Romney. The uh, Right after 9-11, they were going to cancel the Olympics. And Mitt Romney said no. Uh, we can do this and uh, and he did and that kind of inspirational leadership I think is what the country is always hungry for this election uh, it was make America great again I was actually in the going by the tchotchke stand at the airport not too long ago and they had two t-shirts uh, for sale seven ninety nine each overpriced and one of them was the Trump for President T-shirt, and the other one was the Hillary uh, for President T-shirt. The Trump for T-shirt said, "Make America, Make America great, America great again. again," and the Hillary Clinton T-shirt said, "Hillary for President, 2016." Mm-hmm. Yeah, people want to be somebody to lift their eyes over the horizon. And so, the moral of the story is that some
1: subversive t- T-shirt maker
2: <laughs> put out a, captured a, a the campaign,
1: deficient, deficient <laughs> Hillary Clinton. Uh, hillary clinton t shirt I, I mean i mean i don 't want to let 's talk about this right now I mean I want to talk in more detail uh, after we get through a little of your history about the current campaign, but since we 're there, do you think that ultimately was i mean we 'll get into the some yeah. of the other factors. Do you think the presence of a a discernible story versus a, a not a discernible a no discernible story uh, i think the that fact was- that he was talking about America and
2: I think that was actually decisive. I can understand that if you're from Hillary Clinton's point of view, you'd say small things beat you. Because in truth, if a few small things, Wisconsin, et cetera, yeah. well, might you been, lose you that closely, that there, are million, there are a lot of small things that could, you a could point to. A lot of things to. could point to. But you can also look at the big things. And I think everybody who runs for president ought to have a campaign. Donald Trump did. Uh, whether you agree with it or embrace it or not, and I'm not sure she did. Uh, other and, and a campaign that meant something to you. I once put this question on a survey: Who are the great modern American presidents? Modern within memory, and I learned something from what I got back. I got back FDR, I got back uh, JFK, right. uh, Reagan, right. of course, and Bill Clinton, and they all have something in common. FDR, 20% unemployment, 900 bank failures, and who's he? New Deal, right? We have nothing to fear. JFK, Soviets, Sputnik, oh, my God, the future belongs to them? No, no. New Frontier. By the way, we're going to go to the moon in 10 years because that's who we are. We're Americans. We have duct tape. We can do these things. Uh, Reagan, Soviets again, ash heap of history? No, no, that's for the Soviets. We have a rendezvous with destiny. Even Clinton. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. You know, bridge to the 21st century. Go, baby. They're all the same guy. When you, when Americans think of their great presidents, they think of that kind of transformational leadership. Somebody's going to take them into the future. What, who, who's going to lift my eyes over the horizon and take me to a better place? Donald Trump had some of that in this campaign. It's interesting to me, though, I—
1: I, I uh, agree in the main that he had a easy discernible theme and the make america great uh theme uh was one that everybody knew and understood. He is a branding genius and he understood that and hers was sort of an atomized kind of message and it was very much therefore very much about her uh about her but it, the interesting thing to me and I don't I don't want to get you in in trouble and ask you to agree or comment on I this. I can get myself in you're enough going trouble. I be, uh, appreciate
2: you restraining I, yourself.
1: As I've said, as I said on TV the other day, you could be the next Secretary of State, and I don't want to screw this up. If nominated, but,
2: I will not serve.
1: <laughs> but uh, uh, it's interesting because the truth is uh, that uh, I can't think of a more sort of narcissistic candidate than Donald Trump, uh, and yet um uh, he did have this thing out there that people grabbed onto and and somehow he got uh, the voters who voted for him to invest in him uh you know he because of the brand that he had created as a potential solution to the things that they saw uh ailing uh, the you know, country I was
2: I was with a friend Bob Shrum the other day who who said, I wonder what would have happened if Hillary had not served in the Obama administration. Could she have been change? Um, and it's an interesting little thought experiment.
1: It is. It is. It's It's hard to know. Uh, she wasn't part of the Obama administration in 2008, and she ran into some of the, some of the same problems. No. So, you know, I think that that there's that because I know that you are a committed capitalist and you'll appreciate that. I have to take a small break for a word from our sponsor and we'll be right back with Alex Castellanos. Let's return just to your story. Uh, So at some point having tasted different aspects of messaging in campaigns, uh, uh, direct mail, uh, polling and, and, and qualitative research advising campaigns on strategy and message you decided to become an ad maker
2: the storyteller yeah there isn't anything i think you feel the same way there's you're, you're an old journalist right. right the no telling the story is the uh, it's the most fun yeah and uh, that's how you lead people from here to there
1: yeah yeah but I mean, you probably. I mean, people say, "Well, how'd you get into this work?" I, I just did. Just how, how did you? How did you become an ad maker? How did you get start working with film? And
2: came uh, came up here to, to Washington. I was uh, recently married, writing direct mail copy to earn a living. And um, this young intern who worked for NICPAC, the first conservative political action committee. Terry Dolan came over and said, "Hey, I uh, I've got to make some TV ads. Uh, you know how to do that?" Uh, and I said, "Absolutely." Yeah. And that young intern was Mike Murphy. Right answer. Oh, is that right? That young intern was Mike Murphy, the only guy in Washington who knew less about making TV ads. No, actually, during the Helms campaign, and what year was this? Would this have been? Um, I think it was 1848, maybe when. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, was in that campaign and had started all the departments and I just kind of gravitated toward, uh, uh, working with the TV in the campaign. And we, I guess, what, what was that? 84, 84 from 83, when we went on the air in the middle of 1983 until the election in November of 84, we were not off the air except for a week at Christmas. We were making a new spot every week. And uh, so, what we do is we'd write spots during the day and go edit at night. And sometimes we'd make as many as five spots a night, throw away the ones that didn't work. And it was. You, you know, and Murphy? No, this was before you. This was, was before, your, this was this before was I got up here. I see. And so, I had. Uh, it, it wasn't quite like Bill Gates having access to the, you know, uh, uh, a coding machine a card machine at uh, at the university but i had this playpen in that campaign where i got to make any spots i wanted to and it was um you know i learned by doing there was a fellow there named earl ash who was a tv producer and director and we just teamed up and uh, we made i think 150 spots over that year yeah. And after that, you know, a lot of red underlines and bold letters and circles around the words with the red underlines and the bold letters. I remember I mean, that. Yeah. Heavy handed stuff in the With days. a voiceover to match, I'm sure. With a, well, you, you needed that
1: job. I mean, mm-hmm. it
2: was uh, scary stuff, but we learned a lot. Uh,
1: yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, I've never been trained for a job that I've Done which a lot of people would not find surprising <laughs> as, as a journalist or as a political strategist, so a lot of these things are just require you to dive in and uh, and, lear- and learn, learn by doing was which was the race was this eighty four or ninety with the famous crumpling up of the notice that you, was you, 90, you needed because you mentioned that you yeah needed that the was jobs. a
2: different race that was the uh six Ha-Gant. years later that was harvey Gantt six years later so big race
1: harvey Gantt, african-american sort of yeah.
2: iconic figure mayor of charlotte versus helms i was, became
1: a very racially charged race yeah
2: i was up here in dc i wasn't with uh, the helms guys uh at that point i was so writing. you guys didn't
1: do that race?
2: Well, at the very end of the race, Helms was about nine points down with a couple of weeks to go, and uh, Tom Ellis, Carter Wren came up to DC, brought the polling data, said, "You know, we're kind of in a hole. What do we do?" And uh, I sat down with him, wrote that spot that night. We shot it. The spot next, we were talking about. The spot. Yeah, you needed that. Describe. Job. It, describe, describe the well, spot. It's a. It's a fellow. Uh, you know, typical North Carolina voter, white guy in a flannel shirt sitting at a desk, uh, and he's receiving a notice that he didn't get a job. And all you see is his hands and crumpling up that letter and with it, his future. And the copy, if I recall, is, you know, you, um, uh, you, you needed that job, uh, but it went to someone else uh, because of a racial quota. Is that really fair? Harvey Gantt says it is, et cetera. And, um, uh, but the spot that I tried to make with this, with that was that—and it didn't occur to me. I'm a Cuban guy. It didn't occur to me that this was—I mean, we we had the conservative base. I was trying to make a spot for swing voters nine points down at the tail end of a race— that, uh, you know, to me it was a message that Martin Luther King and uh, would have been comfortable with, that no one should get a job or be denied a job because of the color of their skin. I'm just which guessing, I but still I'm not sure Martin Luther King, King would agree with, with you. But. Well, but I would, mm-hmm. that uh, no one should get a job or be denied a job because of the color of their skin. And, but you uh, understand I what the understand pushback completely, was, that uh, this was coded but that's language. that's something I still believe today. I don't know if I would have the courage today, being young and foolish in those days to make that spot. Um Was Dick Morris in the mix? There? No. Well, you know what? I think everybody was in the mix at that. Visiting here and there. He might have been in the mix.
1: How about hands? There were a lot of hands on that on that particular knife.
2: Yeah, yeah. He. Yeah, I remember when Dick Morris um years ago in one of his republican periods mm-hmm. uh, i was telling him the Before guy he went to work uh, back to work for Bill. back Clinton. to work i remember when uh, Dick. Uh, i said look the guy i'm worried about running for president is this governor of arkansas because he's the most kennedy-esque future-oriented guy out there in that field and mara says oh don't worry about him i've I've got some stories on him. I've—he's uh, running around the track with a bomb strapped to his back, and I have the detonator. Hmm. That was Dick Morris, so that's why I don't uh, appear on TV with him or um, do anything else. People kind of tend to think you're like the people you hang around with, so that's not somebody I want to yeah, be. He kind of he cut off the bomb and. The, put away the
1: detonator and jumped on the back himself.
2: Yes, he did.
1: And and Bill Clinton took him a long way.
2: You know, that's one thing. We have both of us, I think. We have a lot of friends in politics and and on the other side. There are a lot of folks I disagree with, but I respect how much uh, they love their country and fight for what they believe in. You can't say that about everyone in
1: politics. Right, right. And I think the perception is that that's more the case than it is.
2: Yeah, Uh, I think that's true. I, you know, you, you go around this town and there are a bunch of good and decent people who, um, who find this, the noblest thing they could possibly do and the noblest meaning they can give their lives and lives. And I think that's, I hope that's still true. Yeah. Well,
1: you know, I'm, uh, I'm not an immigrant myself, but I'm the son of, uh, really a refugee as, as your father was. Uh, and, uh, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm very, very grateful to this country for taking him in. I want to talk to you about that a, a little bit more uh, in a minute. So you and Murphy did very, very well. You guys became the hot young. For Murphy, by
2: the way, is on the board of the IOP, you know, so he's a big friend of the IOP. Mike Murphy, to the Irish, talk is a dance. <laughs> Never had more fun working with anybody than, uh, than Mike. He is so talented and so bright. We were, we were partners for... Uh, for a short run, and we had to decide whether we would remain friends or business partners, because uh, he's so bright. It's obviously somebody who needed to go chart, uh, you know, chart their own course. And uh, but we still, we still uh, catch up. Just saw him out in California, actually. And you now, you're you've got a firm called Purple Strategies
1: uh, with Steve McMahon, a very fine. Um, uh, old Democratic media consultant. He was a young Democratic media consultant when I first met him. I don't know what happened to him. You know, I'm still a young guy. But
2: well, we we always cheer when anybody in politics makes it over the wall <laughs> into, uh, into the real economy. And yeah, Purple is a little business that um, uh, helps corporate America and a lot of trade associations and industries kind of fight for their right to sell stuff and, and succeed in America. We do um, BP's advertising in the U.S. have since the Gulf spill and, and things like that, because it turns out that uh, sometimes building, renewing brands uh, is not unlike... Uh, building a candidate or yeah, you, brought, you a basically
1: candidate. are pitching the lessons you that you learned in political
2: campaigns to corporate clients we run campaigns for corporate clients that's that's what we do and uh and it's a uh, steadier work
1: yeah well one thing i should i uh, should cover is that uh you 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 worked at least for part of 2008 i guess with mitt romney is that right i did uh tell me about that experience and what your uh, sense of him was.
2: Um I love Mitt uh Romney. Uh he's uh, he is an unusually bright and capable human being. I love Ann Romney more. If she ever primaried him, I'd go with her. Uh but they're great folks and you know, as I was saying, he is my idea of what uh, an inspirational leader ought to be meant at his best. And I think sometimes in the campaign, uh, you know, he lost that. He uh, he ran a campaign against you guys, Barack Obama, based not on where he would lead the country, uh, but that uh, why Barack Obama was a bad choice. And I think it
1: uh, wasn't the supposition that when we began that campaign, in 2011 uh, was sort of the nadir of the, you know, there had been the big fight over debt ceiling reduction or, or the, or whether we were going to not reduction, but whether we were going to, uh, whether we we're going to raise the debt ceiling or, or breach it. Uh, and there was a general sense of unhappiness. The recovery hadn't taken hold uh, fully. and, uh, and so, I think when he announced uh, unemployment, was at 10%. And the assumption was that if you just uh, got the nomination, that you could win the election.
2: And don't make any mistakes. And, uh, boy, that uh, turned out not to be the case. You know, you still got to give people a little vision. And to me, it was kind of criminal that a candidate with that much, I think, inspirational ability didn't use it at all.
1: I— you know, I have a lot of friends over there, and I, I always, you know, it's the great thing about politics, like mo- most things in life, is that hindsight is twenty twenty. But um, you know, he had he has uh, some real strengths that go to, you know, family, faith. Uh, this is a guy you know. who stood
2: beside the bed of you know a lot of a lot of people on their in their last days, a lot of kids who. Uh, you know, with with awful, uh, awful circumstances, who has helped people privately, not just with his money, but with his time and his effort and his work. A story never, and, really he never and he never let anybody it was connect, know about that. You know,
1: the way I read it was it was connected to his faith. They thought his faith was maybe because he was a Mormon, a liability in the campaign. He had uh, strengths uh, in business, but because of some of the uh, some of the decisions that were made in terms of. Rationalizing businesses uh, that caused people to lose their jobs. They didn't talk about where he caused people to gain jobs. He was a moderate and successful, you know, yeah. successful governor of Massachusetts. But uh, that the, to get through the primary that was a considered liability, particularly because he supported a health care program that, in many yeah. ways, was a predicate for what President Obama did. And so
2: he was walled off from a lot of his own biography. first time he ran, when the race that, that I did with him, it took us three months to get him to allow us to make a commercial about how he helped someone. A business partner at Bain right. uh, it lost, it had a lost child his daughter. Was missing. Yeah, and uh, Mr. Gay, I think, was his name. And uh, Mitt shut down the business, took everyone to... Uh, New, York? New York the right. entire office right. and, set up they server, and they finally did tell that story in 2012 though late in the campaign Yeah, it. we actually were able to tell in 2008 Larry McCarthy uh, recycled that one for uh, for Mitt because it's one of the few things Mitt would let anybody say mm-hmm. and, and Mitt explained it one thing it, about
1: running for president is you gotta be able to go sort of open, open you know, you kimono get, whoever you are you better be prepared to
2: uh, be able the law yeah. the car keys If you're going to give somebody the car keys to take you somewhere, to lead the country, what do you want to know? Where they promise to take you. Yes, you have to have a plan and a vision, but they also want to know who you are. Can they trust you to take them there? Otherwise, the promises are hollow. And so that's why getting to know somebody, making that connection, and for Mitt, it was always tough because he is so perfect. That he's distant. You know, all of us know, some of us more than others know how hard perfection is. And when we see seeming perfection in someone, it, it makes it false. And, uh, you know, we found out we couldn't shoot Mitt on film because he was too pretty. He was too perfect. Got so. good head of hair, man. He good head of hair. Of yeah, it was, I, I, it was like putting a mink coat on a mink. <laughs> he is just too beautiful. So we had to grainy him up a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you think in this election that, um, I mean, I, 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 you know, Hillary Clinton is someone I know well. Uh, I've experienced her kindness, and I've seen actually her devotion on uh, when she kind of tears into a problem.
2: Um, but she's very guarded. Yeah. I think there's a reason for that. I met her in the green room at ABC this year. The most delightful person you could imagine said hello to everybody came over to me Said, hey alex how you doing all that we chatted for a while she she as as she was leaving she kind of leaned in and said uh you know the way things are going in your party uh uh, don't count us out i said hey the way things are going in our party leave a key under the mat (laughs) she said i'll leave a light on for you delightful person and then she went seconds after that went on the air and was a completely different, closed, cold, very guarded person. And I wonder if it's not because she has led such a tough life. To get where she is, she has had to be very hard, very tough. Otherwise, I don't think she would have made it. And she, I think, is, maybe she's put up that shell in self-defense, but it also walls her off from a lot of people and makes it very hard to trust everyone with anything
1: yeah it's a tough it's a tough business we're going to take another short break and we'll be back with Alex Castellanos. so let's talk about the guy who you helped elect yeah. uh, the new uh, the new president I will say this we were saying before authenticity is the is the, a leading indicator for presidential candidates uh, I don't know exactly how to describe it but it there's not he certainly uh he certainly nobody said gee i don't think he's speaking his mind yeah he he conveyed that um uh I, so why don't you describe what you think he was describing because what i find is that especially people who you weren't originally for him you uh, you made a very definitive statement after yeah. he that uh you know he he won and now it's him or her and i'm for him um but I find that a lot of Republicans who weren't originally with him tend to ascribe to him those things that they uh, subscribe to because
2: it's not exactly clear what it is that he is. Yeah. There's a lot of Democrat in uh, Donald Trump. There's a lot of Republican in Donald Trump. There's a lot of um, of everything in Donald Trump. And you're right, I wasn't uh, uh, for Trump early on. Uh, but, in back in March, when I became at least obvious to me that he was going to be the nominee, then uh, I think it became our job to try to help him be the best nominee and the best if elected the best president that he could be um, let me let me, ask you, let me just yeah. stop
1: you right there n- not to not let you answer the question yeah. that I asked in the first place, but it 's a podcast man that's the way yeah. that 's the way we roll it's your podcast you exactly. get to ask the questions damn straight so um when uh, uh, when you saw him come down that elevator in the original announcement, and he had such harsh words uh, for the undocumented workers uh, who were here, um, you're 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 Cuban. Yeah. You're a Cuban American. Um, did you were you concerned
2: about it? Did it did it bother you? You know that part of it never did because early on. I always, I got the impression pretty clearly that Donald Trump speaks in hyperbole.
0: Donald Trump is say. a
2: different, yeah. He's, he speaks in the language required to communicate in the age of Twitter and the Internet. You know, my son uh, has every meal he ever, he said, that's the best meal I've ever had. Donald Trump kind of speaks that way. And... And I think uh, you know a friend of mine, Brad Todd, I think coined the phrase that Selena Zito wrote about: "Take, yeah. take Donald Trump seriously, but not literally." Yeah. And I think now what she said, and I think it was pre- it was ins-
1: it pretty insightful. I don't know what the source of it was, but that uh, that the elites took him literally, but not seriously, and voters took him seriously, but not literally.
2: And I think that's true. And I think he spoke to a larger truth. And the larger truth is. Nobody's doing anything about this immigration problem. And if what's required to shake things up is to shout when others have just been speaking pleasantly, uh, you know, it's kind of, to me, the equivalent of a shout, Uh, not something uh, that uh, you would take word for word literally like that. uh, So uh, that didn't bother me. But to your question— What I didn't understand, and I think have come to respect, and look, there are a lot of things Donald Trump has said that I cannot defend, will not defend, and I think they're indefensible. Well, that's no fun. Yeah. But I think (laughs) I I missed— You just knocked out my next six questions. What I did not appreciate— uh, is the importance, for example, of strength in this election. Mm-hmm. I think this was an alpha dog election. Uh, and some of you probably don't talk about it enough. The world's spinning apart, the center does not hold, a stagnant economy frustrating people. It seems like, you know, the entire world is moving beyond our control, but also your individual life. And of course, lots of forces in that. And, you know, we talk about globalization or everything, but government has a role too. And that's when you want strength in leadership, somebody to hold the world together. And and I thought in that, maybe going a little too far sometimes in what he said. He demonstrated a certain fearlessness. Well, and I think I, I think appreciate. that
1: his willingness to say stuff other people wouldn't say certified him as not a politician at a time when there's a lot of frustration uh, with with Washington. I, I, the thing that concerns me is that. Um, you say stuff you when you say it's hyperbole and he doesn't mean it
2: uh, in the way that it sounds I it say I, it's it heard it's it's heard another way to look at it is to say he he is almost always not always but when he is speaking about um, issues uh, like whether it's immigration or nato or free trade he's almost always speaking to a larger truth and for example i don 't think he wants to get out of NATO. Uh, I think he wants to readjust the relationship we have with other NATO countries so that they have a, a carry a little bit more of the weight we 're not the country we used to be uh, we can 't bear the burden uh, on our own the way we used to but But you know he 's a deal maker. he always starts somewhere beyond where he hopes to end up, so yes, by definition he 's going too far but i think americans have seen a lot of politicians from both parties go to washington here's my 5 point plan here's what i hope to achieve and right. back up from there yeah but but here here uh, ex- accepting that
1: here's the here's the thing president of the united states we had this discussion the other day on tv is a different kind of deal because what you say and i've had this concern expressed to me by you know some republicans uh, as in the last couple of days what you say has it doesn't even matter what you do. Things you say can send uh, markets tumbling and armies marching. And uh,
2: and I think, David, you're right. That's what you say can change everything. But that is not as an excuse never to say anything. Yeah, that I'm, is, and, and by the way, there are times that in that situation you want to be thoughtful and you want to plan things out, but you don't always want to do that. There are times that you want whoever's sitting across the table from you, to respect your unpredictability as well. Yeah, if, if,
1: if, if in right- fact, you plan things, even if that is your intent. But, in, in, you know, I think it's dangerous as president. And on issues like immigration, uh, on issues when, when you suggest that, and I, I don't want to get into a debate, I'm just but when, when you say millions of illegal votes were tallied or that folks in Philly are going to steal the election— Uh, there are, these are, this goes back to the, the, the commercial that you said you wouldn't know if you had the courage to run. Now, I mean, they do, people hear them with different ears and we are a really diverse country and there's a responsibility when you're president, as he said in his election night speech, to be the president of the whole country. And so I guess the question is, can he make that adaptation?
2: I never thought that the first Republican to go into the inner city and say, I want black America to vote for me, would be Donald Trump. The same Donald Trump who said that, uh, you know, rapists and murders are coming in over the border, and I'm sure there's some good people, too. i don 't think Donald Trump has a racist bone in his body i don 't th- I think he's a business guy he's a New York guy. He grew up on construction sites with people of all walks of life uh, did get into a little trouble on on his housing
1: discrimination thing back in the seventies
2: maybe in a time in a time where that whole industry and the economics of it led a lot of other people that way too. But I don't think that's who he is. Uh, I,
1: I actually can come so, together
2: with you on this. I got in trouble
1: for this because I said I didn't think he was a racist. I thought he was an opportunist who used race.
2: Uh, and, 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 you know, that may be a less charitable interpretation but I of think, what you see. I think one of the things you're going to that I hope you see in Donald Trump is I think you're going to see some Nixon goes to China on some uh, issues where Republicans, frankly— It looks frankly, like I mean, Nixon goes to Taiwan. Nixon goes to Taiwan now, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nixon. But I think you'll see Nixon go to Detroit, and I think you'll see Trump go into the inner city, and I think you'll see Trump try to be a president uh, that, you know, we've got all, so much of black America now trapped in these islands of poverty and despair— And all that has been offered is more the same. Yeah. And I think you're going to – I think one of the things that I I like about Steve Bannon from what I've seen so far is that he's – No one yet uh, on this podcast has made the case for Steve Bannon. For Steve Bannon, this could be a first, is that he's the first guy I've seen who envisions a coalition of everybody left behind – not just white working class Joe Budweiser, but if you're black in America and you don't have a uh, uh and you don't have a job and you don't have a life uh, uh with with a, a family and and or you don't have you know maybe the same opportunities that others have i mean uh the black middle class somebody was telling me the other day that from 40% of the black middle class being employed in manufacturing in 1975, we're now down to 10%. Right. we well, have been but, left behind. But that, Hispanics, but the, I think but the, Bannon but sees that coalition. We'll see it. Not in the pages of Breitbart, though. Well, hey, I've written direct mail. I know what you got to do to raise direct mail dollars, and I guess to run a website. That's kind of a its own thing. I think how you govern i mean well make i think that that's the test and the
1: test is are things done that actually change things i am i would i would be supportive of anything that changes institutional poverty in this country black and white and attack some of these persistent uh problems and if that happens i'd be the first to say uh, great but on this issue that you raise about manufacturing you know I do think that we we have to acknowledge that it's not just about companies going overseas. You you are a great proponent of the future. You I've seen your presentation (laughs) when you hold up the cell phone and talk about everything's new. But part of what's happening is that technology is is churning at a very large fast rate. And those factories that you speak of, whether they're over shipped overseas or not. Are using a, a tenth of the number of workers yeah, because absolutely. robots and uh, computers are now in place. So we need a national strategy of some sort, it seems to me. And this is where you and I might disagree. We need some sort of strategy to at least have uh, some thinking of well, what happens to all these people who are lost in the switches of this new economy. Where's their place? And well, how do we help them? How do we, how do we help them? Uh, achieve their dreams in this kind of an economy
2: well you know we we were talking about this the other day and and you have germany subject to the same global forces that have affected manufacturing here yet germany has a net trade surplus is an industrial giant and has a two percent unemployment rate uh, so what's different here and i think one of the things that's different there's, there's here, quite a
1: bit of national influence a,
2: over the economy there is uh, quite a bit uh granted but also here the national influence that we have has trapped a lot of this economy in amber the head of carrier the ceo of carrier the other day said he would trade every benefit he got in this deal for less regulatory pressure and the way the way i would characterize it is we've closed up our economy with the best of intentions One layer, you know, it's almost like sedimentary layers in the Grand Canyon. One layer at a time, we have helped this economy. Washington has so much that it's closed it up. And we have, and you can see that that in action in the new economy. We have a new economy that's booming, inventing the future right and left, because they haven't had that help Uh, And how do we make, how do we open up the old economy more like the new? Well, how how do we open it up in a way that the advantages of that economy are not limited? Well, you know, maybe we don't have to worry about that as much until we open it up. Because if Washington's idea of opening up the economy is more of the same and another layer upon layer of of all of this stuff, uh, it will remain trapped in amber forever. And that's, I think, the, uh, the big challenge here. Um, we should point
1: out, just in fairness to the good old USA, that yeah. our creaky old economy grew at a much faster rate than the Germany's did uh, in, in the last quarter. So uh, somebody's doing something. Uh, somebody's doing something right you said on uh the night let's, of the, let's have of a of head of nod election. to the
2: president here let's go ahead and do it he's an axelrod client right i'm for that not,
1: well not no longer a client just to someone i admire uh but uh look i know where we were when we got here and i know where we are now and that took a lot of hard blood sweat and tears and sometimes not a lot of help uh so and and we we're in a much better place and frankly in a much better place than uh, any country in Europe uh, but here's the, here's my last question for you on this because um, I know what you believe and I mean I've heard I've, you and I've been talking yeah. about this for years um, and you talk about um, uh, about uh, what does the next Republican party look like and you go through this and you talk about the economy and you say let's grow it bottom up not uh, the old way top down from Washington. And yet, here comes Donald Trump, who's negotiating with a company and saying, "If you don't ship these jobs overseas, we in Washington will see to it that you, through your state government, get seven million dollars in benefits, and we will not take your defense contracts away." Now, there are probably Democrats who would say, "Yeah, I'm for that." I, I think uh, you know Bernie Sanders was critical of it because of the, because of the emoluments that went along. Uh, with the deal, but what could be more top down than the president calling companies one by one and and basically threatening and 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 bribing them into keeping jobs here? That can't be the image of the economy that you anticipated.
2: I think in many ways Donald Trump is a corporatist. He's a CEO, not in in many ways unlike Mitt Romney. And you've elected candidates, uh, David. You've elected business guys uh, to governorships. And, you know, you've seen that MO. Hey, they can run it better. Uh, That doesn't mean they want to make it smaller, alter it, or change it. And Donald Trump said that when he ran, you know. He doesn't really have a problem with big government. He just thinks losers and morons are running it. I have a little different view of the Republican Party and what I believe. You know, I do believe that's that, what I'm getting at. That political, you know, political and artificial top-down solutions uh, can't keep up with a dynamic and changing world. I believe in more open, bottom-up, organic solutions. I believe in more government. I just don't think it's old factory-like government from Washington. I believe we have other tools in our toolbox with which to govern ourselves, and we ought to open our culture, society, and politics up to all that. I do think Donald Trump—so I think Donald Trump has a lot of Democrat in him, Republican in him, which I think, by the way, may help him become an effective president here. But I'd say that— uh, he's my hope for Donald Trump is that he's the right man at the right moment. That he's the turnaround CEO who gets in here, cleans up the books. We got a twenty trillion dollar debt. Fires some people that need to be fired, which he's had experience doing, and and uh, stops TV. our competitor. It's all on TV, right? right. Every, all of us. It's on Twitter. All our lives are everywhere yeah. now. Yeah. Yes, experience communicating to people. Uh, and he cleans up the books and, and maybe stops our competitors from kicking sand in our face and gets the business back so it's running again. But yes, do we still need a Republican Party that is larger than any one man, one administration? Of course we do. And by the way, our Republican Party was in such shit shape that an outsider who'd never been part of it came in and mowed down 16 of our best and brightest that's how hollow we were and how little value we provided mm-hmm. so we still haven't fixed that problem right yeah i well for sure both
1: parties have challenges that they have to uh, address right now um and you know i i i i hope that this works out I, I honestly do i mean i i i don't agree with i mean there are some things that Donald Trump is proposing that I find deeply uh troubling, but I also uh believe that not some things, many things, but I also believe that uh, we have one president at a time, and if there are places where he's going to do things that will improve uh our economy in ways that benefit the largest number of people i would you know I would be the first to to say good because we can't wait for every four years,
2: you know? Yeah. Yeah. This, this, uh, I, I think that's right. And if, um, I think he's, I think a lot of people are concerned that at the disruption that he may bring would be too large and would be a perhaps frightening and uncertain. And my my concern is the opposite, that this beast institutional we call government, that, yeah, that the institutions of government are have so much mass and inertia, there's so much poured cement, that I think his challenge will be to be as transformational as the country needs. Mm. I think bringing My- enough change is going to be the problem, ultimately. We've seen CEOs elected governor, David, and... You know, they're gonna go in there and run it like a business. It is really nearly impossible to change the beast. My concern is
1: is is, I think you're right that that's a big danger. And we're seeing some of that now. I think uh, that you can see institutional Washington uh, on the particularly on the Republican side sort of um, uh, making its move. Um, my concern is that while well, you call him a CEO and there's no doubt that he is his, his talents are in branding and largely branding himself. And um, I I don't know at the end of the day what is the core sort of governing philosophy. Your man Reagan, uh, you know, people sometimes compare Trump to Reagan. Uh, I talked to one of Reagan's old aides last night about this who was very resentful of this. And I kind of agree with him, which is, even though I disagree with Ronald Reagan, I knew, I knew what he believed. And I also knew... That he was prepared to govern because he had been a two term governor of the largest state in the country and uh, came to office with a seriousness about a governing we don 't know that about this guy, but I can encourage you though
2: I can encourage you one is when you start looking at some of the cabinet selections there are there are people there with a very concrete philosophy, and probably this is i just don 't know if it 's his conservative well in his appointments, maybe we 're seeing how he would govern and in the philosophy of those he's chosen, he's picked a very Reagan-esque cabinet so far. So I think that's encouraging. And when you look at the economic plans he's put on the table, they're very Republican and Reaganish. Uh, my big fear on his economic plan is not that he's supporting you know, Republican tax cuts like Republicans always do. Which, by the way, will create bigger deficits when he— Unless, of course, you get a lot of growth and get back to we've 4% heard growth, We've heard that. We've heard that. I know which, the yeah, dynamics. But that's going, what we we've need. heard that before. Which is what we need. My concern is that right now the American economy is awash in cash, in money and that's why corporate balance sheets are loaded and we're Mm -hmm. seeing wall street go the way it is There's, there's not a lot of confidence to invest it i don't think that just cutting taxes though i'm for that is going to provide the growth republicans always expect The pipes are frozen. When you're pouring gas in the car and the tank's already full, you're just going to overflow. The engine is frozen, and we've got to open up this economy uh, so that it can grow organically. I think you're going to see see uh,
1: deregulation on a large scale, larger than is probably healthy, but I think you're going to see it. Because you're going to see see wherever the Republican Republican, – Congress agrees with Donald Trump, I think those things are going to go. Where they don't agree with Donald Trump, I think those things are not going to go. And I think Mike Pence is very deftly um, uh, orchestrating all of that. But we should, we, we will come back and revisit this, and we'll get you out to Chicago to talk about it uh, some more. Alex is always good to be with you. What a treat to
2: see you, my friend. Take Thank care. you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.